pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of those songs. As Kate prayed earlier, we thank you that we have the liberty and freedom to gather together and to say those things about you, or to be here this morning exploring and wondering who you are, and to be able to hear those things said. And not everywhere in the world is such freedom available. So we are privileged, Lord. And I pray that we wouldn't take that privilege lightly this morning. There'd be a lot of joy, the right emotional response to who you are, and a lot of thought, the right mental approach to who you are. And from our meeting this morning, it would flow into a right response in our hands and our feet and our words and in how we live uh, in the workplace, uh, with our leisure time, uh, with our money, Uh, And especially, I pray, within whatever our family context is, as your word has brought us to this point of thinking about parents and particularly about fathering this morning, I pray for a real sensitivity to one another and a clarity from you that what we talk and reflect on together this morning might both be truthful and helpful in full measure. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And as always, if you have a Bible, uh, either because you picked up one of the church's ones, which are always available, uh, or your own, I wonder if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to look, actually this morning, just at one sentence. It's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, sentence 4 in Ephesians 6. It's on page 1100. And 77, page 1177, Ephesians uh, 6 and sentence number 4. This is what it says. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It could read, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's what exasperate might mean if your translation says exasperate. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, I can imagine uh, the range of emotions that are generated by that first word in that sentence. Uh, Fathers. I wonder what it conjures up uh, for you. I was shocked the other week to discover myself becoming like my father. Uh, Orifices on my face have hair, which never did. And I don't know how that's happened. And I now listen to Radio 4 in the car. Uh, Oh, dear. People often say, don't they, they you become like your father, you become like your mother. Not all of us will be glad about that trajectory, will we? And so when it's something as sensitive uh, about as fathering is, when it's something that also, as I'll show in a moment, is as culturally confused as fathering is, when it's something that comes with all sorts of personal experiences, pains, hurts, and things that need to be healed, as well as with joys, we need to walk carefully, don't we? And we need to be cautious of one another. I'd like to give uh, five reasons, just quickly, why I think, even though it's so personally sensitive, even though it's so culturally confused, it's worth us and it's important for us to think about fathering. The first is that all of us have or had a father, don't we? And that individual, that, that person, has affected hugely the fabric of who we are as the individual we are today. You might reflect 
with gladness that that person has helped you become someone that you're glad to be, you might reflect, and that person actually did you harm. And it's been a struggle to undo some of the experience that you had. Whatever your father was, whether they were helpful or harmful, it can only help us, can't it, to reflect carefully on our past experience of our own father or our own parents. If they helped us, there'll be all sorts of things we might want to catalyze in ourselves from what they passed on. If they harmed us, and perhaps brutally harmed us, then it can only help reflecting to help us heal and move forward and to become someone we're delighted to be even more. The second reason why I think thinking about fathering is important is that the majority of us men are or will be fathers. Statistically, that's simply true. Whether that's through biology, because you have your own children, whether that's through adoption or fostering, which is something I cannot recommend and commend enough for people to explore if you're in a context where that would be appropriate, or whether it's through influence. And most of us men, whatever age we are, and I'm talking now 18, 19, right the way through to 80 or 90, right the way through, don't underestimate the father-like influence you're having on those around you. And so all of us men, statistically, biologically, through adoption or through influence, will perform a father-like aspect into someone else's life, won't we? And that takes huge amounts of energy, of hair, of money, of effort, and therefore it's got to be worth doing well, hasn't it? Anything else that required that much from us, we would train for, we would go to courses for. You have to do a course to climb a ladder nowadays. Did you know that? Why on earth do we not do a course about how to be a good dad? It's very important, isn't it? Third reason it's worth thinking about, of the five, is that fathers are massively important as co-parents. And in a moment, I'm going to show that in our culture, we're not encouraged into that co-parenting role. The weight lands on a lady's shoulders. And yet, fathering is hugely, hugely important in the co-parenting experience. Let me just draw a couple of external references, really, um, to emphasize that. Do you remember those riots of 2010, 2011, that spread across our cities in the UK? Do you, you remember those riots taking place? After those riots happened, the government launched a review panel, as you'd expect, and they called the Riots, Communities and Victims panel to review, if you like, what had gone wrong. What was the heart cause that particularly young men, but younger people, had, had wanted to behave and react like that? In their summary, this is what it says. We heard from many communities who feel that rioter behavior could ultimately be ascribed to poor parenting. We need to consider what can be done to ensure that all children get the right support, control, and guidance from parents or guardians to give them the best possible chance of making the most of their lives. Our general finding was that most children, most people involved in the riots as children did not have a stable, steady, father-like figure. They go on to make six recommendations, and I'm trying to be open and really sensitive to the context. And as we move forward, those of us who are feeling pain right now as we reflect on our own lives, as we move forward, we will discuss what that looks like and God's redemption, his love, and his wisdom within that context. So come with me, even if the emotions are churning right now. 
They carry on in this report to make six recommendations. One of them is titled Widening Inclusion, and it says this, some children grow up without a single positive adult figure in their lives. Public services should take steps to ensure all children have a positive role model from a church's wider family or from the local community. Where it's in the best interest of the child to do so, we recommend that the huge number of absent fathers should be aggressively contacted by social services and schools about their children as a matter of course. It's stark, isn't it? Very stark reading. Back in 2008, Care for the Family, uh, who is a, it's a Christian organization, but very well respected and highly thought of, produced a report called the Fatherhood Bibliography, actually in response to changes in IVF treatment, which were moving men more and more to simply being needed at the point of conception and not being recognized as being needed through the growth period that follows that, only needed literally at the initiation. And Care for the Family produced this bibliography, which is a collection of over 120 uh, snapshots from different reports from all sorts of disciplines about the uniqueness and importance of fathers in the co-parenting uh, uh, experience. This is what they say. This bibliography contains details of some of the research highlighting the uniqueness and importance of fathers. Fathers bring a distinctive and unique contribution to the parenting process that cannot be compensated for by other means, such as by the provision of an extra money, extra mother or more money. It is vital to be clear that mothers are just as important, and I want to be vitally clear about that as well. We're talking this morning about fathers as a particular half of the parenting, but they are of equal importance to mothers. Indeed, many of the entries highlight the importance of fathers in the context of a widening assessment of differing but complementary and vital roles played by mothers and fathers together. And through this report, they draw, as I said, on all sorts of sources of information to point out that fathers are needed as co-parents or father-like figures, role models that can invest in a child's and an adult's life, which are alongside the mother figure that is there. So my uh, third reason of the five of why it's important is because fathers are of a crucial importance in raising children or father-like figures. Fourthly, and this is where the two parallel, is that we live in a society where fathers are encouraged or expected to disengage from that crucial role. That many of us this morning know what it's like to not have that co-parent alongside us because that man, that individual, is avoiding that responsibility, i.e. they're present in the house physically, but they're not present in any sense emotionally or relationally. All you know of a father, maybe your own, who hasn't simply avoided but has abdicated and abandoned that role. They're not even present physically. They've left and are distant from their children. And some of us know the horrors of abusive fathers at literally whose hands you have faced real horrors. And if that is you, the church and I stand alongside you with enormous love 
and wanting to contribute and give as best we possibly can. And if this morning you are a man, and behind your front door you are abusive to your children or to your partner, today needs to be the day that it stops. I will not be shocked if you as a man come to me and say, I use my fist. The children scatter from me when my temper flares. I will not be shocked. And I will not allow you not to change that behavior. So allow me to help. The fourth reason why I think thinking about fathering this morning is important is the most personal of the lot. You may have noticed I'm a dad. Did you see that? And I love my boys very, very much, and I want to love them more. And fathering is really hard, isn't it? It's really difficult, whatever your context might be. It's difficult for me. I think it's very difficult if you're a single mum and you're thinking about the various parental strategies you might want to or choose to employ so that your children have a father-like influence in their life. It's difficult if you're divorced and therefore there is a lack of access or physical presence that you can have with your children. It's difficult if you're in a blended family context or perhaps a family where there are multiple parents who are involved in that child's life because various families are involved, but they all parent to a different consistency or in a different way. Parenting, fathering is really difficult. Now, before we come to this single sentence, I just want to do two more things, if it's all right. Having kind of said this is why it's important we discuss and think about this, is to say you might be sitting here with, with two real apprehensions that I would understand. The first is you might be saying, wow, that is quite a topic that Alex is daring to broach. There is no way he has the experience to do that. One or two of you couldn't help but just nod then. And I feel that as well. Alex is way too young. Actually, I would say that's true for every single one of us in this room, isn't it? That the complexities of what we're talking about here are beyond any one person's experience, any one person's lifetime, any one person's parenting skills. If I could fast forward myself till I was 80 years old and could reflect on all the stages of parenting that I and Hannah would have been through, I think I would still have the thinnest soup to offer you this morning in terms of parental advice. And so actually your critique is absolutely fair and therefore I don't plan at all to offer you tidbits of advice from my limited experience. What I want to do is to dive into the Bible's wisdom about what fathering should look like, which may raise your second apprehension, which if the first is Alex is too young, the second is maybe the Bible is too old and unsophisticated to address the complexities of what we've just talked about. And if that is your response, what I'd like to do is ask you just to press pause on that for a moment, to not fall into the trap of being a chronological snob and saying just because something is old, it's not relevant, and to reflect that the Bible actually has this proven track record of delivering across all of time and across all cultures. And if so many other people have found it useful, just give it a go and see whether we might, even when it comes to something as difficult as this. Is that fair? Let's have a look at this sentence then. One sentence of all the Bible has to say about parenting and fathers. Fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I want to ask just two questions of it. Why fathers and why anger? Why fathers and why anger? Let's take the first one. Why fathers? Well, particularly, you've got to remember that this is a letter that was written by a man called Paul into the particular context of the place called Ephesus. And in Ephesus at the time, in the first century, fathers were encouraged to disengage from a love relationship with their children and actually with their wives as well. And so if you read the commentaries or those historians who write about the time of Ephesus when Paul was writing, men as husbands and as fathers were really brutal. They were masters over their children. In fact, the law was suspended and handed to the man of the house to do what he liked legally with both his children and with his wife. And so there's regular accounts of fathers being encouraged of the culture uh, to leave their children out to die from exposure if they didn't have enough resources or finances to pay for them. Particularly uh, female children were treated in that way because they might not have the strength to work in the agricultural fields and the like. And so when Paul here is writing and names fathers particularly, not parents, do you see what he's doing? He's writing to that particular culture and saying, actually, in the, that culture at that time, it's the men who are most adrift from the reason that God created them and the way they should be living. Now, interestingly, if you're familiar with the Bible, then you might know that in 1 Peter, which is another letter written by a guy called Peter, he writes to a culture when the reverse is true. And so in 1 Peter 3, you see a lot written about women and hardly anything written about men because it's specific to the culture of the time. So here in Ephesus, he writes to husbands mostly and not so much wives, which we saw a few weeks ago, and to fathers mostly and not so much mothers because of the particular cultural context of what was going on. They're not, they're failing in their created purpose as fathers. So the question is, is what is a father's created purpose? Well, Paul, in the way he's written this letter, has used that word father a number of times leading up to its usage here in chapter 6. And every other time, a very particular word for father, every other time he's used it about God the Father. So in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, he talks about God as the father of all families. In chapter 4, verse 6, he talks about God being the father of the church. And then he uses that same word here to say, and fathers. He's highlighting that the biblical purpose of being a parent, any parent, and particularly of being a father, is that the fatherhood of God is to be expressed through the fatherhood of men. That children are meant to be given a sight of what God is like through what their parents are like, their mother and their father. That they get a taste or a feel or a hint of how God loves or how God protects or how God produces a secure or a safe environment. That the perception a child has, both a grown child and a child child, the perception a child has of God is intrinsically linked to the experience they've had of their parents. That until a child reached an age of adulthood, their perception of who God is is seen through the lens of their parents. So the question comes back is, are we like one of those fairground mirrors that distorts and wobbles and changes what God is like? Or are we like the finely tuned optician's glasses, which bring crystal clear clarity about what God is like? 
Now, I just want to pull into a lay-by for a moment and talk to single mums. Because there is a reality that fathers have a particular role in showing what God the Father is like, simply by carrying that same name. Especially in a young child's mental ability to compute. You talk about God as the heavenly father, and then you talk about a human father. And they're going to associate the two much more strongly than they would their mother. Does that make sense? So I want to just for a moment, very carefully, but openly, talk to those of us who are parenting in a context where we don't feel like that father figure is present, either because we are a single mum or because the man who should be doing that has distanced himself for whatever reason. I want to be clear that fathering is an important but not the only vehicle of showing what God the Father is like. So if you are a single mum, if you find yourself in that situation, I'm sure just do what you are already doing, which is to activate other mechanisms by which that fathering can be experienced by your children. Maybe the heroes you point them to on television or in their computer games. Crucially, by finding role models you can bring alongside you appropriately to do that and influence in that. Also, just for a moment, want to recognize that there's some of us sitting here whose human fathers harmed and did not help that vision of who God was. That, that we look back and say, my dad did not show me who God was. Now, if that is you, I really encourage you to see the vision that your father didn't see. To see God the Father in a way that your father never did. To see further than he managed. Does that make sense? And see beyond him to who, he, who God really is. Let's pause and just get our wits around us for a moment before we ask that second question. Paul addresses fathers here because the Ephesian context, the culture, encouraged fathers to disengage from that role. It's a culture that's mimicked in ours today, where fathers are encouraged. They don't have, they're given permission to disengage from the fathering role. So he writes to fathers and says, re-find your God-given role. Re-find your God-given call to image me to your children and to anyone who is watching. The second question I want to ask is, why anger? Children do not provoke... Uh, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Why anger? Just think about it mentally in your head for a moment. Of all the emotions that a parent should or could generate, why anger not to be provoked? Well, I think there's two answers at different levels. The lowest level answer is to remember the culture of Ephesus. If the fathering you've experienced has been rough and brutal and lacking in love, which was the Ephesian culture, how would you respond when you grew to adulthood? Anger, wouldn't you? And many of us know that. And I've sat opposite countless people who re are, are reliving parental experiences that they had growing up. And anger is the response. Rightful, justified, legitimate anger. Why did he not love me like God loves? Why did he not care for me? So that's it at one level. At the second level, I think that anger is because it's a reflection of the weight of the child-parent relationship. There is no relationship, I think, in the world 
that is more laden with dynamite than the parent-child relationship. And it can explode in one of only two directions. It explodes in anger or it explodes in love. And any of us who have journeyed as parents any length of time and all of us who have journeyed as children to our parents know that, don't we? One word from a parent can set our life in one directory, a different word, and our life is in a whole other trajectory, isn't it? One parent, and life goes that way. A different kind of parent, life goes that way. There is no relationship we have in the world more laden with dynamite and set to explode than the child parenting. Will it go to anger? Will it go to love? And the direction it explodes is determined by the intention and vision of our parenting. Which way that dynamite goes depends on how we will parent our child. Now note here, it doesn't say avoid anger. It says avoid provoking anger. Sometimes children get angry all by themselves, don't they? Sometimes it's, it's their fault. It's not never have angry children. It's you avoid provoking the anger in your children. Now what if you're sitting here and you reflect on your grown child? So you're a bit older and you're reflecting on your grown child. Maybe they have grandchildren. And you want to say, Alex, what if I have provoked that anger? And what remains is a damaged and fragmented relationship. And that describes a number of us, I know. In a room this big, it's bound to. How when my grown child has disengaged from me? How when there are things I look back on with real remorse that I did which provoked that fracture, what do I do? And my simple advice is, feel very sorry, shattered and heartbroken. Recognize your error. That's what the Bible calls confession, before God and before them. Hold your hand up. And then plow every ounce of energy God gives you to show that you are a different person now. Because every child who is estranged, and that is so painful, every child-parent relationship that is fractured, that child longs to run home. What they need is a home they know they can run to and be safe. And if that wasn't what you created first time round, do everything now to show that you've changed so they can come home and be safe. Last question to ask, because I want to finish very much on the positive and I've kind of spoken as I think I would like to be spoken to. That's what I've tried to do. Does that make sense? Not to duck bullets, to be well-intentioned, to speak straightly, but to know we're just walking on broken glass with this. If parenting is about displaying what God is like, if fathering has a particular role, both shown by culture's research and the Bible, if that relationship is set to explode, and can go either to love or anger. If he says, don't make it go off in anger like they were in Ephesus, make it go off in love. How do we do that? Do you see? How do I parent in such a way, and now we're talking about fathers and mothers, in such a way that it goes off with love? The answer's in the second half of the sentence. It's shown by the little word instead. Fathers, do not exasperate, provoke your children to anger. Instead, 
i.e. how do you provoke them to love, instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And I love what Paul has done here, who wrote it. He butchers grammar. Paul and I would have got on, just as a little aside, give yourself a brain break. Paul and I would have got on at school. I thought I wrote brilliant stories in creative writing at school. Wonderful, imaginative, creative, extravaganzas, epics they used to be. I challenged like Tolkien and and C.S. Lewis in those huge books. Uh, And then the teacher would mark them and all she'd be bothered would be if my comma was in the right place. She used to kill me. I would have got on with Paul. He absolutely butchers the grammar of this sentence. Because bring them up is in the present tense. Training is in the past tense. Instruction is in the future tense. I think what he's saying is, he's saying, first, you need to bring them up. You need to be involved in the present, in the right now of their life. You've got to bring them up. Fathers, bring them up. Now, how many of us would say, the guy who's next to me, who's meant to be the co-parent, hasn't heard that? He is not bringing up the children. He's bringing in the money, and he's bringing up his golf handicap, but he's not bringing up the children. Do you see? Fathers, you're to bring up the children. Not not because mothers aren't, but because you're co-parents, and fathers drift from it. In the present, present tense, it's about insight, it's about now, it's about knowing them listening to them, understanding them, knowing who their best friends are. For younger children, I think that is about quantity of time. That's how younger children think, don't they? It's not about quality. I gave them a good hour a week. When they're under seven, it's just be there a lot. When they're teenagers, I think, talking to some of you who have teenagers, I think it's more about the quality. It's more about choosing precise things that resonate with that child and they know that you know them intimately well. Your selection of activities fits them perfectly. The point is bring them up, be involved. The second word, training, is in the past tense. I think that's about hindsight. I think that's about a parent's role of sitting down with their child at whatever stage of life and saying let's reflect together on that experience you've just had. Uh, How is your day at school today? My dad, uh, about a year after uh, we were married, sat down with me and said, Alex, let's talk about that first year of marriage. It was worse than the birds and bee talk that he gave me at like 12. I think it was more uncomfortable for him. But do you see what he's doing? It's good, isn't it? That's good modeling by my dad. He didn't get everything right. I think he got that right. We help our children reflect. They've just come through a teenage period, perhaps. They've just come through where their emotions have been all over and it's been a bit tense in the family and they're coming out. Could you sit down with them and say, let's talk about that. What what was going on? How did you find that? They've just come through a big exam or something's happened in their sports team that's really rocked them. Let's look back and talk. They've just had their 40th birthday and it's a midlife crisis and they turn up on your drive in a beat up old Porsche because it's a Porsche. That's time to sit down with them and say, let's reflect on what's going on in your life. Hindsight. The next word is the word instruction. He butchers it and puts it in the future tense. Where one is about parenting is about what's gone. This is about what's coming, isn't it? This is about saying, uh, look, your next stage of life is going to be your 20s. You're a young man. You're going to think you're a bit of a warrior. You're going to think you can take on the world. I really want to encourage you to do that. But be careful. Don't get yourself killed. Isn't it? Or it's coming alongside your your daughter, as she becomes an empty nester. 
and that huge transition of life where there's no more children there and saying, let me help you understand what this next period of life looks like. Let me share my journey with you. Sitting down with your 11-year-old as they come to the end of primary school and saying, there's a big move coming. Let's talk about high school. Let's talk about big decisions you've got to make. Let's talk about how you manage yourself when temptations come. Very practical, isn't it? And then notice how it finishes. In the Lord, or of the Lord. I think that's a final warning that comes to all parents who love Jesus, if that describes you. Don't fall into the good, but not good enough trap of investing only in your child's moral compass. Or don't fall into the trap of investing only in your child's educational excellence. Don't fall into the trap of thinking your parent is predominantly about making them relationally wise or emotionally intelligent. Don't fall into the trap of thinking your parenting is mostly about making them globally alert and citizens of our world or generous in their service. Parenting is mostly about in the Lord. Nothing makes a child more angry than the eternal anger that will burn in them because their parent failed to show them what God is like. Nothing will provoke my children's anger more than if I fail to give them a true sight of God. It's their decision about whether they follow him. But if I only worry about how good their exams are, and only worry about how kind their hearts are, only worry about how distant the, their horizons are, and don't worry about in the Lord, they will burn with anger at me, and I will deserve it. So how about you? I know I need to take it home. I'm a father, and I have parents. I have a father. I have parents. I have major mistakes done to me. I have major mistakes I have done. How about you? What kind of actions as a parent is God calling you to do? What kind of actions as a father? A reconciliation? A greater involvement? A better hindsight? A better foresight? A better insight? Where's the spirit just resting and saying, there's a call you need to make. There's a date in the diary you need to put. There's a demotion you need to ask for to create time. So I'll leave it with you. And wherever Kate's gone, I've just lost sight of her. So if we'll sit quietly for a moment, I'll leave it with you. And then Kate will close us with a couple of songs.